Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And uh, with me here today is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. How you doing, Nathan? I'm great. Uh, this is episode five already. I can't believe how quickly we're racking them up. Yeah, no, this is fun. Um, so I guess just jumping right in, you, you found an interesting or kind of funny article uh, today, right? You want to tell us a little bit about it? I did, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about two things. Um, we're going to talk about this article that I found online because I think it really applies to um, one LSAT concept that is important. I think we can talk about. And then after that, we're going to talk about my student, Lizelle, who uh, has applied this cycle to eight or nine, ten schools, and she's waiting. Uh, she's, she's really kind of trying to decide what to do. So yeah. I have... Uh, all the schools where she got in and how much scholarships she got and a um, bunch of questions from her about where she should go. So we'll dive into that, I guess, after we talk about this article. Um, so the article, I'll post it to the, um, to the show site, but uh, it basically just was an analysis of the word natural as it's applied to food products. And... I found it to be really interesting. The, the conclusion of the article was that the word natural means absolutely nothing when you see it on a package. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was really applicable to the LSAT because um, kind of contrary to something we talked about in the last episode, in episode four, we had Larkin on, and Larkin was a great guest but one thing that he said that I think you and I, Ben, both disagreed about a little bit is um, he was emphasizing how a great education is almost necessary in order to do well on the test. And I expressed a bit of skepticism about that because I don't consider myself to have a really terrific education, mm-hmm. and I've done quite fine. Um, I think it's that skepticism is exactly what has made me do well. So, um, now here, I, I want to interject for one second, yeah, yeah. just to be fair to Larkin. I think, um, I don't know if he was saying that it was necessary. I guess I sort of had the impression that if you had gotten a good education, that would help you develop the skills that, um, you know, are tested on the LSAT, and I don't know that he was saying that you couldn't get those other ways or that you could have them naturally, but it would certainly be a leg up, maybe. Okay, that that's great, and I think you're right, and I'm, I'm glad we're just clarifying that that's what we, I think, all really believe, mm-hmm. that, that it isn't something that's necessary. Um, it could be sufficient, right? It, it, yeah. the, the great education, studying philosophy and studying formal logic and all that stuff could definitely be enough to help you succeed on the test, but mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it's by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm glad we got that straightened out. And again, yeah, no offense to Larkin because he's he's a great guy and he was a great guest. So anyway, this article, if you'd like to read it, we'll post it to the show website. But it the conclusion was just that the word natural um, really has no meaning according to the FDA. There's no legal meaning. Basically, you can put natural on your label anytime you want to put natural on your label. So I, I think a lot of people might find that to be shocking because when someone sees a label that has the word natural on it, 
I think that the assumption is probably a lot of times people are going to say, oh, so then this doesn't have any pesticides, or oh, so this is organic, or oh, so this is healthy. And I can imagine LSAT questions, especially logical reasoning questions, all day that just trade on exactly that kind of flaw in thinking, mm -hmm. where they'll present a premise that starts off using the word natural, and then in the end they'll use a conclusion that uses the word healthy or organic or pesticide-free or you know, non-GMO or whatever you want. Um, I thought it was funny, when I got home after reading the article, I went through my pantry and my fridge just looking for some examples of things that use the word natural. And uh, I actually found probably that the, the less healthy something is or the less natural something is, the more likely it is to use the word natural on the yeah. packaging. Yeah. Um, have you ever read any Michael Pollan books? No, I don't so, think. What, what, has he, what has he written? Because that name sounds really familiar. The Omnivore's Dilemma. Oh, yeah, um, I've heard of that book, but I haven't read it. Yeah. Well, it's he's he's great, and I mean, I'm not like a health food nut, really, but he he's great. And one of the things that he says is, uh, simple rule of thumb for being healthy is to avoid foods that make health food claims. Hmm. Uh, because if they make health food claims, that means they are packaged in some sort of a manufactured packaging. And just the fact that they are manufactured packaging probably means that they have lots of you know, preservatives and other sorts of shit in, in them. So yeah. here's, here's some examples of some stuff that I found in my pantry and in my fridge. Um, there was, a, you know that real lemon lemon juice stuff that comes in the the green bottle and it's, yeah, like, it's like concentrated or whatever yeah so my, my kids make lemonade with that all the time yeah. although it's pretty nasty so yeah i mean that stuff is like poisonous right it, and it 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 says on the bottle 100 percent lemon juice from concentrate and then it says natural strength <laughs> so it's not, the product isn't even natural but the strength of it is natural natural strength <laughs> yeah and and then I looked at the ingredients you know in the tiny fine print and I don't know what any of this shit is but sodium benzoate sodium metabisulfate sodium sulfite natural. well you gotta realize Nathan those things are all natural right they are yeah. in the environment so right. <laughs> what's unnatural about them okay so I mean but that's what an LSAT student needs to do right when you read an argument that uses the word natural you really need to be asking the speaker mm -hmm. did you did you define the word natural if if you present a definition of the word natural in your argument mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then I I, if it's a premise of your argument, then I will accept your definition of natural just for the sake of this one logical reasoning question. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to just present one premise that uses the word natural and you never define natural, then yeah. it's still open to debate what natural actually means. Yep. And, and you're making this broader point about just any sort of words in general that, you know, you might impose a meaning upon it yourself, but you have to be careful and say, well, am I just extrapolating from my experience or is there a solid reason for imposing this definition? Right, and you need to remember that there is no objective standard of what natural means going into the test. So if you mm -hmm. believe that natural means organic, that's great, but 
natural does not mean organic until the LSAT question actually defines natural as organic. Um, another example, and now this is not using the word natural at all, but I found in the back of my fridge, I found some Target brand, uh, like a plastic jar of Target brand sliced peaches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it's, and the, the tagline there was freshly picked. <laughs> okay. Now, so they waited until they were fresh, I guess, whatever that means, right? Right. What, so, so, so that's the question. And yeah. um, if you've read my logical reasoning encyclopedia, which I know you use it in your classes, um, that's really, I think, more than anything else, that's what I'm trying to hammer into the students is that you need to be asking this speaker. You need to say, okay, listen, you just told me that your sliced peaches were freshly picked. What the fuck does freshly picked mean? Mm-hmm. What, yeah. How do we, does that mean that they're fresh now? I mean, because I, I looked at the back of the jar and it's got a sell-by date of October of this year. Mm-hmm. So it's not even to its sell-by date yet. Yeah. This thing's been in the back of my fridge for a year. Yeah. And we haven't even yet reached the sell-by date but now it says on the jar fresh something about fresh. It's like, oh, these are fresh. These are going to be yeah. really good. Uh, this is delicious. I, I actually started feeling a bit ill. I had to like throw those away. I was like throwing shit away in my. Um, and uh, you know, just a couple other examples, and then we'll move on. But sriracha has uh, quote unquote natural color. Mm-hmm. Sriracha. Mm-hmm. That shit is like the most artificial thing I've ever seen in my life. It, and the color, there's nothing natural about it. I mean, yeah. it's like the neon red, it's natural color. But then you look, potassium sorbate, sodium bisulfate, xanthan gum, whatever. Um, a couple other things that I saw in my pantry, maraschino cherry, or my fridge, maraschino cherries were also natural. Microwave popcorn has, quote, butter natural flavor. Butter. It's butter flavor. Whatever, whatever they can do to get that word in there, they, they want to do. I'm, I'm sure it probably increases sales, right, in some way. Or that's the whole. That's the whole point. So I guess we've we've hammered this one pretty good. But the the lesson here for LSAT students is that you need to be um, hypercritical. I mean, I want you to be hyper skeptical when you're yep. reading a logical reasoning argument. If you mm-hmm. find yourself nodding along, if you find yourself agreeing with the speaker you're probably mm-hmm. doing it wrong. You mm-hmm. need to be saying, hold up, what does that mean? Do we have yeah. a definition of this term? What are mm-hmm. you talking about? I'm not going to buy your bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Well, so, I, and I, as you were talking, you, you know how you kept talking about organic as a way to further define natural? Yep. And it, it made me think, so my, my wife is kind of into this, and um, she actually wants to own chickens, and so, like, we buy eggs from the store, and, you know, the eggs will often say, like, cage-free on them or right. organic and so on. And she was telling me that even if it says cage-free, that doesn't actually mean that the chickens were raised in a cage-free environment. They may have actually been in a cage, but what it, the legal definition is that there is an, a door that opens up to a free range, but apparently if the chickens are never shown that door or shown or, you know, to go out of it, they never do. And so then they're actually effectively raised in a cage, but the company can claim that they're cage free. Now, I'm sure there are people who actually 
do cage-free chickens, but there's no way to really tell just from the label, apparently. But my And same with organic. Apparently, um, organic just means that you promise not to use certain pesticides, but you can use others. So then that means that you end up using a lot more of these, like, more quote-unquote benign pesticides but the point is is that not, not you know it doesn't just stop with the word natural you can't just say oh i don't get that one so oh but at least it's organic every word really can be defined right like you can just keep going down the list and that's the same in the real world and they just everyone plays that game yeah i mean and that's that's what the lsat is testing your ability to do right now i, mm-hmm. I think this is a common sense strategy i think anybody can do this but you just you need to be really really skeptical you you've got to ask what does that mean that's what lawyers do right lawyers argue over words that you know nothing can be assumed mhm I guess Bill Clinton would tell you that, right? That there are the crazy words in the English language. Wasn't he debating what the word is means or something like that when he was... Uh, Anyway, it was a long time ago. Our students probably are too young to remember the whole uh, (laughs) Bill Clinton issue. But, um, okay, well, anyways, I think that's pretty pretty good. Are you ready to move on to Lizelle's issue? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So Lizelle was a student of mine who had done some previous LSAT prep when I met her, and uh, she had on record a, well, she has now on record a 160 LSAT and a 162 LSAT. She has a 3.78 GPA, which is pretty strong. Um, She has applied and been accepted to a bunch of schools. So uh, UNLV... She has already deposited there, and UNLV, she has a full ride. Uh, Santa Clara, with a, pre, with a three-quarter scholarship offer. UC Davis, with a three-quarter scholarship offer. I guess William & Mary, she said, was the highest-ranking school she got into, but they only offered her a one-quarter scholarship. She got into yeah. Notre Dame and Boston College with no scholarships there. And so she's I looked on, up... Go ahead. William Mary. I looked up William Mary. I think they're 28 right now. Okay. So, and I was, I was just curious for reference because uh, UNLV, which was the one she was most interested in, right? I think that's like around 83. I mean, those okay. exact numbers are not super important, but that's kind of the, the rough range. Okay. Um, I guess before we even get into her questions or issues, um, if William and Mary is 23, you said, and UNLV is 80-something... Twenty-eight. Yeah, 20. Sorry, twenty-eight and eighty-something. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know what you think the practical difference is between a school that's ranked twenty-eighth and a school that's ranked eighty-something. Well, I, I'm not an expert on this, but my gut reaction is that that's a big difference. I would consider the top thirty a lot different than the top ninety. Interesting. Okay, my gut says the exact opposite. My gut says, <laughs> well, I mean. I tell students all the time, I, I think that there's really two different types of law schools. There's the great law schools, and then there's the good but not great law schools. Okay. And so I just tend to put 28 in the same, I lump that in with all of the other, what I would consider to be regional law schools, which is, that's an excellent law school if you want to practice in, where, where is William & Mary? Do I know? I don't even know where William & Mary is. Yeah, it's in Virginia. It's, it's south of here, like okay. in a couple Mm-hmm. So it's it's reasonably close to you. Um, 
I guess the equivalent out here would be like a maybe a Hastings or something. William and Mary is going to outrank Hastings by a little bit, but um, to me, that's just that's a law school that Apple Computer is not beating down the door of to hire attorneys to do billion-dollar litigation with Samsung. Sure. You know, um, so for me, it's I kind of see it as the top fourteen, and then everything else. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with the everything else schools. Yeah. Now I could be totally totally wrong about this in terms of like hiring, but uh, so I, this is just my this is why my where my gut comes from. I'm thinking that if you want to go to you know go take a more traditional route and go into big law or at least a a medium sized law firm, I think that a school that's ranked in the 30s. Uh, it depends on where you are. Location starts to matter more. I think I agree with you on that for sure. But I think that's going to calculate into their matrix higher, you know, and also depending on where you are in the class. Like if you're in the top 15% of the class at a top 30 school, I think you have a decent shot at some of these bigger firms. Whereas I think if you're in the top of your class in a school in the 80s? I mean, I, I feel like no, but may, may, you know, I have no idea really. I, I've never been behind on the other side of the wall for a firm hiring. But given their sort of, it seems like their approach to, oh, uh, what's the ranking of the school? I feel like as you go down in the law firm tiers, those things are still going to matter. Um, okay, so neither of us are experts on this. We acknowledge um, we need to get somebody on who is an expert who can who can really help us decide whether there's a difference between a school that's ranked 28th and a school that's ranked 90th. Yeah, um, yeah. One thing that you just mentioned is the big fish, small pond versus uh, small fish, big pond issue. And so yeah. we're, we're going to get into that. Um, we're also going to get into another LSAT topic uh, with regard to those uh, employment statistics. We're going to talk about another LSAT topic, which is selection bias. So mm -hmm. we'll get to that in a second. Let me just give you a little bit more uh, of the kind of data on Lizelle, and then we'll start going through her um, her questions. So sure. the deal is she, uh, she retook the June LSAT, 2014 June LSAT. So she's waiting right now for scores, which are going to come out in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, what she's saying is, if she she has been practice testing uh, like in the high one sixties, so what she says is, if she gets a one sixty five or higher, then she's going to try to push more on USC and UCLA because she's on their wait list right now. Yeah, but she also says, depending how well she did, she may even sit out a year because she applied on the late end of. The, the cycle this year. So what do we think about that? Well, I, my opinion in general is that when you're, when you're deciding, you know, what law school to go to, if waiting a year makes a difference because either you're applying earlier in the cycle or that gives you time to get a better LSAT score, in general, I would say go for it. I, personally, I don't feel like one, waiting one year is really that big of a deal compared to a 30, 40-year career. 
So I say, wait, keep working at this, the job you hate, even if you hate it. It's one year, if that's going to make a big difference in terms of ultimately where you go to school and what you end up doing with your career. But, you know, I, I meet people all the time who are like, no, I have to go this fall or I'm not going at all. So, which then makes me think, well, why do you really want to go to law school? What, what's your motivation for going to law school if it's either all or nothing now? I just can't possibly agree more with that. Um, you know, <laughs> we're a bit older, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny that the older you get, I mean, I have less years ahead of me than my students do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I am in less of a hurry than they are. Yeah. And I guess you have that exact same experience, having been through law school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that there's no point in jumping into law school. Yeah. I love your point that you made about, uh, you know, if you're going to have a 30-year career, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Like practicing for 29 years or practicing for 30 years? Yeah. And, and, and what kind of career is that going to be, you know, especially if you can get in. So you said USC was one of the schools that she was waitlisted at, right? Yeah, she's waitlisted at both USC and UCLA. I mean, those are... USC is 18, right? I think I was just trying to look that up. I think UCLA is like 15. Yeah. So, well, in terms of your, in your mind, that's starting to get into the more national schools. That's where I would think, yeah, I I would start thinking about it if you're in the top 14 or just right outside the top 14 is what, but I mean, I'm, like I say, I'm not, I'm not a super expert on the, on Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So, I think we do agree that if she does come back with, let's say she comes back with even a one, because she she wasn't sure how much difference a few points will make. Mm-hmm. But what do you think her candidacy looks like as a one sixty six instead of as a one sixty two? Well, I feel like four points makes a huge difference I agree. because um, even if you end up going to the same school. I think you could switch in their minds from a student who's like, oh, well, this kind of fits within our LSAT range to a student who's someone that they really want and will help increase their LSAT score average and thus they'd be willing to pay for. You know, that's if if you just want to stick with the same schools. But I think it also opens up other schools that you may now consider. So, Um, One thing that people, I think, don't realize is that you know, if you just say, uh, oh, 166 versus a 162, I think mm-hmm. the naive opinion would be, oh, that's basically the same score. Mid, mid 160s, 160 something, you know, oh, 166, yeah. 162, same thing. But um, I think if you look at the percentile that is associated with those scores, mm-hmm. I bet you see a pretty big difference between 166 and 162. I think one, 166 is a quite a bit rarer than 162. Yeah. Is what I'm yeah. saying. I mean, I, I think people don't realize that like small moves in terms of number of LSAT points is a big move in terms of how many of your competitors you're actually moving past. Yeah. So I might go so far as to say that a 166 would be, it would make her almost an entirely different candidate than a 162. I, I agree. I agree. I think one or two points, you start saying, okay, this yeah. is, it's definitely better, <laughs> I right. would say. You know, if you got that extra point, that's all the more power to you. But um, four points, almost anywhere on the scale, I think is rather significant. Even even up at the top, you know, 172 to 176, I think makes a difference. 
I, I think it does as well. I mean, when you get into the 170s, it's possible that your LSAT score might be the highest in the entire range at the school you go to, especially if a school is going to maybe give you scholarship money. So, yeah. you know, that 176 at a school like, let's say, even like a UCLA or a USC, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't have the ranges in front of me, but my guess would be that a 176 in any given year could be the highest score that is going to UCLA or USC. Um, mm-hmm. In which case, I bet they would be willing to pay for a 176 where they wouldn't maybe be willing to pay for even a 173 or 174 because you know they publish that range and now they get to publish, oh yeah, we have a 176. Interesting side note, when I went to Hastings, I had oh, the but, highest... So, go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, go um, ahead, please. I'm was, curious now. You have the highest... <laughs> <laughs> well, when I went to, uh, when I went to Hastings, um, I was... The year that I went, my 179 made me the highest LSAT score that went to Hastings that year. Okay. Uh, and my 2.54 undergraduate GPA made me the lowest... Uh, GPA <laughs> that was admitted to Hastings that year. So I was on their fact sheet twice. Yeah. Well, that's really funny. So wait, did they like tell you that or is it like... No, it's on their fact sheet. I mean, they, all that shit is just published. The The ranges, the like, high and... Oh, they put the range. Yeah. So you, you may not be the... There may have been another 179, maybe? Oh, okay, fine. There could have been someone that matched me. Sorry, sorry. I, I didn't mean to like like <laughs> deflate your... No, no. <laughs> Your, your achievement. But, uh, yeah, okay, just curious. Okay, so that's interesting. Well, the, this thing, this other sidebar that um, I was thinking about, talking about, have you seen that video on YouTube um, with the, at the time it was the dean of UVA law school talking about the, basically, why the LSAT score is so important? Dean of UVA law talking about it? No, I have not seen it. Okay, so... I, th- I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, maybe it's I th- maybe it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but it wasn't obvious to me when I watched it. And I, I may be slaughtering it, but I'll-, I'll just give a quick, quick nutshell of what he was saying. And I will post this on uh, thinkinglsat.com. So if anybody listening wants to find this YouTube clip, uh, we'll have a link to it on the site. Yes, and I would watch it. Like He just talks and talks and talks about all sorts of fascinating things about the test itself and the challenges that it has. And I think even in that video, he talks about two or three students every year who take the test, get a 180, and then in the experimental section, mark all the answers as E in a sort of a, you know, a <laughs> an affront to the LSAT or LSAC. It's just kind of funny. And they don't know how they, they know that that's the experimental section. But in any case, um, in this video, he, he basically says that the reason the LSAT score is so important, and some say, I guess, maybe 60 to 70% of the admissions decision, is that when it, when it comes to the ABA, basically approves whether or not you're a law school, okay. right? And the ABA has been, made all these rules so that basically, if you want to be an accredited law school, you have to offer these certain classes the first year and so on, making all law schools essentially the same. Yep. And so, since they're the same, unlike business school where you have like different schools that specialize in different things, there's not really a way to distinguish law schools except for 
by their quality to say, oh, we're better than so-and-so because you can't say we're better at X because everyone is trying to accomplish X. So it's just where are you on this scale? And U.S. News and World Report is the dominant ranking system and no one else, I mean, I guess Above the Law has come up with one really recently, but no one else has really been able to compete with them because there's nothing else to judge the law schools on. They all have pretty good factors and so on. Well, just to be clear, when we say that William & Mary is ranked 28th, we're, we are referring to the U.S. News & World Report rankings, and that's what everybody always does. That's right. So they yep. are the, they're the champion. I mean, they are the rankings for now. Yeah, okay. and the, the reason they have been is because law schools aren't really different from each other. So trying to come up with a different system, just it doesn't really fly. Now, I guess I'll be curious to see what happens with the AboveTheLaw.com ranking system, but right. I, I haven't heard much more about it. But in any case, since um, there's only one ranking system, and that's the U.S. News & World Report, uh, law schools obviously depend on that a lot. Now, Apparently, the first three, two or three things in that ranking system are outside the control of the law school. They are things like reputation or whatever, soft factors that a dean can't really do anything about, like directly. I mean, obviously, you can try to improve your reputation slowly over time, but there's nothing you can like concretely change about your school. It's like teacher to student ratios or something like that overnight. There's nothing you can directly do. But the first thing that they can do is the LSAT score. Yep. So the first thing on the highest, the most, like if you think of the ranking as determined by all these different things, the most important thing in that ranking system is the LSAT score that they actually have control over. And if the LSAT score average for a school goes down, then that law school's ranking will likely go down, which, you know, they could say, hey, who cares? We're more concerned about the quality of our education, not necessarily about the ranking. The problem is donors or i guess you should i should say alumni look to that ranking and kind of that ranking determines for a lot of alumni how much they value their education and apparently when that ranking goes down or up donations go down or up Not also applications i mean and applications my right, students yeah. your students they they take the law school rankings very seriously i mean too seriously yeah but the reason why Okay, so because alumni and students and applicants take the rankings very seriously, and because LSAT moves those rankings, mm-hmm. that's why LSAT is really important. And even a couple three points can make a huge difference. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, and I think it's interesting that it kind of comes back to this these rules because like ABA sets the rules of the game, and then you're going to end up with certain results. And if you change the rules of the game, you're going to get different results. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so even though we both say don't pay so much attention to the rankings, uh, the rankings are important to the extent that you should be kind of thinking about them when you think about your own application. It's like mm-hmm. you need to evaluate your your own candidacy. Yeah. Well, I guess the reason we're so it's like the rankings are important to the schools and they're important in the minds of the alumni or the students. But what I think the reason you're saying don't pay attention to them as much is that in reality, when you yourself go get a job, how much is that going to depend on the ranking of your school? Right. And that's what we really, really care about the opportunities you have after you leave school. Yeah. So I want to get into something. Um, She says, According to law school transparency, so she's comparing two schools here. She's comparing Davis to UNLV. Okay. 
And she says, according to law school transparency, the employment rate at UNLV is 62% and Davis is 69%. And then she's trying to figure out how heavily to weigh that. I see students doing this all the time. And what they usually say is something like, oh, well, employment rate at UNLV is 62%, employment rate at Davis, 69%. Therefore, if I go to Davis, I have 7% better chance of getting a job. Yeah. So I think there's a flaw in that thinking. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, You want to take it? Well, the flaw would be that the people who end up going to Davis may be just better at getting a job because they're more diligent or whatever, and it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Davis made them more likely to be hired. I think that's exactly right. So this is, I think we could formally call this selection bias. Yep. Um, The flaw that the student makes when they are thinking about this is, I guess they could be ignoring selection bias as a possible cause here. They're taking correlation to mean causation. Yep. And they're also extrapolating from averages back to individual cases. Mm-hmm. Right? Because she's saying, oh, well, if I go to Davis, then that'll, I will have a 69% chance of getting a job. Yeah. So, first of all, correlation does not mean causation. Just because 69% of people who go to Davis get jobs does not mean that Davis is causing 69% of the people to have jobs. Yep, that's right. Even if Davis were causing 69% of people to, have, to get jobs, that may or may not apply to any one individual member of the population. Yeah. Also, you're only looking at historical data, not future data. True. So their job placement right now is 69%, but who knows what it'll be four years from now when she's actually graduating from Davis. True, although that's likely not to change super a lot, right? I mean... Sure. Now, one thing, to, I, I totally agree with you. Like, we, a lot of people, I think, are looking at this as the school is, is what's increasing their chances of getting a job. And it might not be, as you were saying, exactly. I wonder if it's kind of halfway in between. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm certain it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of both, probably. I'm not saying that it's not a causal factor. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying that that correlation doesn't prove that there's a causal factor. And anyway, even if it is a causal factor, I really doubt that it's 100% of the causation. Yeah. Oh, no. No, no, certainly not. I, I, my guess is that realistically, it's like half and half. It's, it has to do with the student. And there's people who actually weigh that. You know, they say, oh, you went to UC Davis, at, and that helps you get a job versus... You know, I'm, I, I know I'm going beyond what we know here. I'm just trying to predict what the world is actually like. I'm making a guess. I mean, which I admit is a guess, but... Yeah, you know, so we can play around with the extremes, and this is actually something that I think I would probably be doing. You know, when you see one of those numbers and percentages logical reasoning problems on mm-hmm. the test, um, mm-hmm. this could exactly be the question. You know, UNLV has 62% employment, Davis has 69% employment. And then yeah. it's going to ask you some questions about an individual candidate's chances. And I think you need to play around. And So, so let's just take the Davis 69% employment rate. Um, mm-hmm. What if you are, what if you were a 4.0 and a 180, mm-hmm. and uh, 
super passionate about whatever area of law and you've got 10 years already working in the law firm and you know exactly what you're going to do and uh, you go to Davis and you're like valedictorian at, at Davis Law. Yeah. Do you have a 69% chance of finding employment once you graduate? Yeah, no, you have to consider all these other factors. I mean, that would practically make you 100. It'd be, it'd be, I would assume that you could get whatever job you wanted if you were that person. Um, yeah. Flip side, you know, what if your, uh, you know, what if you once uh, your, you know, you get the letter from Diane Feinstein that uh, somehow you pull strings and you get the letter from some big shot and mm. um, UC Davis decides to accept you with your one forty five LSAT and your you know, like me, 2.5 undergraduate GPA, and you don't really know what lawyers do, and any, in any case, you don't really want to do what lawyers do, and mm-hmm. you go to Davis and you barely graduate. I mean, do you have a 69% chance of, of getting a job? Not, you know, maybe if Diane Feinstein writes you another letter. Yeah, or if you're that kind of person who can connect in that way, maybe so, but probably not, right? Like, your chances are much lower. Okay, so this, I mean... I'm running across this more and more recently, and I don't know why. I, I think there has been a lot, well, since the financial crisis and since all of the job losses in the legal market, um, yeah. people are paying a lot of attention to these employment statistics. But I yeah. just, I got to get people off of this idea that, that those job placement numbers are really causal. Um, yeah. You know, because, um, so let's get into then this she, she so, asks, uh, go ahead. Wait, yep. So can I recap what you were kind of saying there? Because I yes. think your, your second point is actually, it's something, I mean, it, I think it's something that is actually a lot more important is that this, even if it is a factor, what you're saying is even if the school is a factor, it's, it's like one twentieth or one tenth of the overall factors. Right? And these other factors are way more important. Yeah, the the fact that you are smart is what got you into that school in the first place. The fact that you're smart, the fact that you're hardworking, the fact that you are diligent, you know, you got your application in, you're a good writer, you wrote a good personal statement. If they interviewed you, you're a good interviewer. There's all these factors which have to do with you, not them. That's mm-hmm. what got you into that law school in the first place. Yeah. Now, the school's reputation does carry some weight, and the things that you learn there carry some weight, and the network is the network, and that, got, that has some value to it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you are a really strong candidate, so you know, let's think about um, a former, one of the, my first students, and I might have mentioned her on the show before, she had a one, close to 170 LSAT, she had a good GPA, she applied to a bunch of schools, she got into a bunch of places, and she decided to go to a school that was ranked like 90th in the country at the time, maybe higher than that. I think it might have been 99 or 101 in the country at the time, Golden Gate. She goes to Golden Gate University because they offer her a, a great scholarship. Mm-hmm. And she ends up in her first year excelling academically. Yeah. And she ends up editor-in-chief of the Golden Gate Law Review during yeah. her second year. Yeah. So... Does it really matter to her what the average employment statistics say for someone who goes to Golden Gate? No. I would say in that case, it's almost a non-factor. Yeah. Because 
she's now going to get all of the best opportunities that Golden Gate has to offer, isn't she? Yeah. So I guess that's the big fish, small pond question. Yeah. I mean, I guess to be fair, like people who, I guess, well, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but the higher the ranked school, even though it's selection bias, by getting that name on your record, along with those other things, like what you said, you know, doing the law review or whatever, those are indicators and you may be just as good as the other person who did law review and you didn't, but by not having that indicator on your record, you can't sell yourself as well. So there is, I guess the selection bias is important here, but it's also that by being a good student, you're taking advantage and building indicators or something like that. Right, but I guess the, the point that I was trying to make is if she would have gone to a higher-ranked school, mm-hmm. she very likely might not have had the opportunity to be on the law review. Yeah, yeah. So she, mm. she actually, because she kind of purposely put herself into the position where she was going to be a big fish in a small pond, yep, yep. She, not only was she going to that school for free, yeah. she also uh, ended up being able to really excel academically, and then she got to tack on some additional indicators to her resume that she might not have gotten to tack on if she was just competing among 100% equals at some giant big school. Yeah, which I, I don't think is necessarily means that big fish, small pond is better because it's kind of, it seems like it's a balancing act, right? You're saying, okay, well, I could be in this bigger pond and have this indicator and no others possibly because I'm going to graduate in the middle of my class with nothing to say for that. But if it's a high enough school, maybe it's worth it, you know, I, especially if you're... Yeah, I mean... Right. I'm not saying that big fish, small pond is absolutely the strategy to go for. I'm just saying it's a strategy that needs to be considered. Yes, because most people are thinking the other way around. Right. And, and then I've never thought about this before myself, so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this. But the opposite strategy might also be a good... I mean, this is more, I think, more common is someone goes to the very best school they can get into. Yeah. Like they apply to 30 schools and they get in, they squeak in, you know, by definition, mm-hmm. if you apply to 30 schools, there's going to be a school where you kind of squeak in. Yeah. And then they just go to whatever the highest ranking law school is that they can get in. I yeah. don't think that's a great strategy, but it might be a better strategy than going like middle, middle. Yeah. Because there, if you, you know, like let's say you squeak into UC Berkeley or you squeak into like a truly top tier school. Yeah. At a school like that, you might be the you might finish in the bottom bottom of your class. Yeah. But there, because it's such a great school, mm-hmm. the reputation of the school might actually carry you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's tough to say though too because I wonder like, I mean, I think in a top top school like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, stuff like that, Columbia, being at the bottom of your class is not too bad, but I think once you start getting into the teens and stuff, Big law firms, I guess it depends on your goal, but a lot of people I think are looking at big law firms if they're trying to get into these top-tier programs. They're going to look at your GPA and they're going to say, this is not good enough. They're going to look at your class rank and they're going to say, I'm sorry, we are coming to campus to interview people, but you do not qualify for on-campus interviews. Yep, yep. And that's what people don't understand. So, that I mean, that's where I think the really bad value is, is like, man, if you're going to go to a school that's ranked 30th in the country... Mm -hmm. you better be prepared if you want to do big law especially 
you better be prepared to like kick ass academically once you're there. Mm-hmm. Because if yep. you finish in the right, even if you finish in the dead middle of your class, mm-hmm. on campus interviewing is like a lot of times it's the top 25 or the top 15 or the top 10% of the class. Yeah. That, that they just, they're just simply not going to interview you if you don't, if you don't finish that high. So mm-hmm. in that case, maybe it would, especially if there's scholarship money involved, mm-hmm. maybe you might want to think about not going to that 30th school in the country if you're going to have to pay full freight. Maybe you might want to dip down into a school that's ranked 70th in the country but has a really strong local reputation, and especially if they're going to let you go for free. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So bring this back actually to UNLV, right? Sorry. Um, oh, bringing this back to UNLV. Yeah. I guess Lizelle, I think she said that she wanted to eventually end up back in the Bay Area, right? Correct. So she grew up in Las Vegas. She spent time in Vegas before. She likes it there, so she's happy to go there. But yeah, mm-hmm. she specifically says, she says two things. So. One, she says, my family's here, my friends are here, I want to practice here. Mm-hmm. And then she says, I, wanna, I want a change of scenery, I want to spend some time away. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think I want to spend some time away is a good reason to go away to law school. Yeah. You agree? I agree. I wondered. I was wondering if she would get enough away time by going to UC Davis. Is that far enough away? Well, apparently, it's so two hours away, right, in Sacramento or something. Right. Like. So um, she gave she gave some more information about Davis. She says that basically the reason why she applied to Davis is that her parents wanted her to apply to schools in the Bay Area to be closer to them. So okay. But she didn't apply to any of the schools in the city. She applied to Santa Clara, but she did not apply to USF, Golden Gate, Hastings. I don't know. I don't think she applied to Berkeley either. So Mm -hmm. she was like, the way she, I I have to say, I mean, she's not going to be offended, but I think it was a bit foolish, her strategy for how she selected schools, I just don't think was very wise. Um, You know, if she wants to practice in the Bay Area, it's absurd to me that she didn't apply to USF, didn't apply to Golden Gate. Yep. That that's just that's I, I can't I mean because with a one sixty something LSAT score, she's really likely to get full ride offers from a school like USF or a, full, a school like Golden Gate, and mm. you know she wants to she doesn't want debt, she yeah. does want to practice law in the Bay Area. USF and Golden Gate have great reputations in the local area. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess I'm starting you know ha- having discussed it now for a little while. I wasn't sure before I started talking to you, but having discussed it for a little while, I'm coming around to really thinking she maybe should wait a cycle and reapply and see what the offers come back as. I mean, especially if she picks up another couple LSAT points. Yeah. So, well, yeah, well, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, if she gets up there closer to where she was scoring, I think you said 165 or She was something? scoring like 168 even. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. so it could go, who knows where it would end up. But if it if it ends up higher... Oh, for sure. Because not only will the offers be at better schools, they'll have uh, at the very least she'll get much much better scholarship offers. What are the consequences for the schools that she's already applied to? Do you know? You mean if she says no? Uh, if she well, well, if she, yeah. I guess if I guess she could defer at one, or what's the consequence of that? Some of, she, some of the schools might let her defer. Um, some schools don't let anybody defer. Okay, but you know that like. 
I've heard a lot of people say, you know, like Hastings, I think, by default, tells people, um, oh, it's, um, admissions very competitive every year. As such, we don't allow anybody to defer. We will have to reevaluate re your candidacy next year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my response to that is always like, okay, listen, you wanted to sell me a JD this year. Yeah. Are you really not going to want to sell me that same JD next year? I mean, you don't want my $160,000 next year? Yeah. Really? I don't, I don't buy it. So, I mean, I personally, I've had a lot of students apply and turn and, and then decide not to accept any offers and then reapply the following year. And I've never had a single student like get discriminated against for doing that. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about the Davis issue for a minute. She, she says she applied to Davis because her parents wanted her to apply to schools in the Bay Area. She says she didn't research it. She did not visit the school. I just, I just think that's unfortunate. Especially because they did offer her a three-quarter scholarship. Yeah. It does have a fantastic reputation in Northern California. And it's a decently ranked school, in my opinion. I think, I mean, you know, especially if it's like, Let's compare UC Davis to William and Mary in Northern California. Yeah, that's that's a no. I don't care what the rankings are. No, yeah, no that's contest. It. Yeah, no contest. Well, that's why UC I was Davis. thinking like UNLV. I wonder, you know, it's it seems a little. I don't know how how many people go there and then come back to California to practice, but it seems like a different market a little bit to me. And so then it'd be like, well, if they're the same ranking, I'd probably still go for UC Davis. But now it's like so much in my mind ranked higher. To me, it seems like it's better on both fronts. It's closer in terms of practice area, and it's higher in ranking. I so. think she's making the decision that she would rather live in Vegas for three years than live in Davis for three years, yeah. which I certainly can understand, mm -hmm. but you're not really going to be living in either of those places for three years. You're really going to be living in the law library for three years. That's right. <laughs> and a law library is a law library is a law library. So I, I'm... I see a lot of students doing this, and again, it might just be that I'm like getting, turning into an old man. But um, the dollars are there; it's such big dollars here. I, I, I just think she. I, I think it's a mistake to be thinking about social aspects and wanting to travel. I don't. I don't think this is an opportunity to explore the world. Yeah. I think this is an opportunity. You know, cause think about what she's going to do, right? She's going to go to she's going to go to UNLV. She's going to practice. I mean, they're obviously going to be studying a lot of Nevada law at UNLV. Yeah. Which is going to be basically useless to her when she's in California. Um any internships, externships, clerkships, any kind of connections that she's making, she's going to be making with judges and courts and attorneys in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a long way from the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. If she went to Davis or if she went to one of the schools in the city, she would be making friends and connections here in the city. Yeah. She also seems to be making a bit of a mistake strategically. One of the reasons why she was going to go to UNLV was because of the full ride. Yeah. Which I, I like. But... Davis got offered her a three-quarter scholarship. Yeah. And if she's just looking at the tuition, that might be a meaningful difference. 
Mm-hmm. But when she starts also looking at living expenses for three years, mm-hmm. then I don't think the difference between a full tuition scholarship and a three-quarter tuition scholarship is that much of a difference when you know you compare it to the total investment that you're going to have to make. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, oh, I would you know get out of law school debt free. Well, no, but even with a full scholarship, yeah. you're not getting out of law school debt free. Yeah. Well, has she leveraged these scholarships at all? Has she tried to pit schools against each other yet? So that I do not know, but I would, yeah, I mean, I would strongly recommend that she ask the schools for more money. I mean, for sure, she needs to be showing, Santa Clara offered her a three-quarter scholarship. I think she should be showing them the UNLV full ride yeah. and see if they would be willing to match it. She and why not? Yeah. Why not do it? To, I mean, I guess if, if, if she's convinced or, or decides to, if she was considering Davis, what I would do is I would write Davis and I'd say, I really am, I'm really grateful for the scholarship you gave me. I'm really excited to go here. You're my number one pick. But financially, I, this is really important to me to get a full ride. And so is there any way we can make this work? And just see what they do. You know, they may say, no, <laughs> we've already given you three fours, but they may say, sure, and just give it to you. Who knows? Yeah, I'm shocked Especially with that else has score coming in. Yeah, I, I am shocked how how much money I've seen people get just by sending an email uh, asking very politely. Yeah, asking mm-hmm. for more money. It turns Maybe into more money. That. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we need to follow up with her and find out what she actually gets once the scores are released. Um, maybe we'll do a little quick follow-up on a future episode to see where sure. she's at after that score yeah. comes back. For now, I think the advice is wait. Yeah. She already paid a deposit to UNLV. I don't know how much. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that she put a padlock on the checkbook yeah. for at least a couple weeks. You agree with that? I would. Mm-hmm. What's your experience on, uh, you know, the schools try to go for like repeated deposit deadlines. Uh, have you, you've, you've seen this, right, where it's like, oh, first deposit, such and such yes. date. And then mm-hmm. three weeks later, oh, second deposit, you know, can you send us another 750 bucks. And they tend to yep. escalate as well, right? It's like, yep. first deposit, it's just 250 bucks. And then it's like, <laughs> students go, oh, I'll write a $250 check to hold my spot. And then yeah. three weeks later, second deposit, 750 bucks. Yeah. And then they get like they get like priced in, or they start thinking about the sunk cost of the deposit yep. money that they've already made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that those deposit deadlines are, in a lot of cases, very flexible. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I don't have any experience in that regard. So that's interesting. So what do they do? You contact the school and say, "I can give you the deposit a couple weeks later," or something? Yeah, you contact the school and say, "Wow, you know, I'm I'm just." Um, I'm a bit overwhelmed. Uh, I've got all these offers. I can't decide what to do. I got to talk to my parents. Uh, I got to find the money. I got to, uh, I don't know, you know, reasons, reasons, whatever reasons. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sending you a check. And, I, you cool. know, I think if you pull that on Stanford, Stanford's <laughs> going to be like, okay. Get your stuff together and get over here or not. Stanford's going to say, oh, you're not the candidate. We thought you were. Um, yeah. Never mind. But <clears throat> I've never seen a school outside the top, 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 whatever that means. I've never seen a, you know, (laughs) I have never seen a good but not great law school tell somebody, yes, you absolutely have to make this deposit 
certainly not on like the very first deadline that they give you. Mm-hmm. Just like you almost never have to pay the first price they quote. Yep. You hardly ever have to, I think, make the deposit on the first. Now, some schools oh. might be sticklers about it, but I haven't really seen it. Interesting. So that's totally news to me. Glad to hear it. Well, I we will. can update. I mean, <clears throat> I'll be interested if listeners have stories about this. Uh, definitely be interested. Um, you can contact me directly. That's Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben, it's Ben at strategyprep.com. Yep. And you can also leave uh, comments on the website, which is thinkinglsat.com. There's a blog post associated with every episode. Uh, I will go on there and post uh, a couple things that we discussed, the news story that we discussed, the uh, YouTube video with the dean of UVA Law School. I'll, I'll dig that up and post it. Great. Um, I think that's about it. Anything else? I think so. No, that sounds good. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah.